This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for December 11th, 2017. There's been an explosion in the diversity of new media in the past decade. You're listening to this podcast after all. But what about old media? Are FCC rules causing all but a narrow range of voices to be crowded out of the market? One journalist, an online journalist, thinks so. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Over the past couple of weeks, Bitcoin has bounced around in value while in general surging upwards. To give you an idea of its surge, at the start of this year, in January 2017, Bitcoins were trading at less than $1,000 US each. Nine months later, by the middle of September, Bitcoin had risen to $3,000. By the end of November, less than three weeks ago, it hit $10,000, and in the last week it has traded at over $18,000. And by the way, if you're not sure exactly what Bitcoin is, if you feel the need to learn more about it, I have just one piece of advice for you. Don't bother. There are two types of people who are raving about Bitcoin at the moment. One of those types is the libertarian type who want to remove the role of governments from backing money. If you advocate the total or almost total absence of state power over people's lives and say that this will lead to a blossoming of the economy, an obvious stumbling block is the fact that governments create and guarantee money, which is pretty important for the economy. In case you don't know, a Bitcoin is a type of computer file which is unique and traceable online. The Bitcoin is traceable, but its owner is not, and thanks to a bit of fancy computer mathematics, there's a limit to the total number of Bitcoins that can exist. The theory is that anything that's scarce is valuable. Also, thanks to that fancy bit of mathematics, each Bitcoin needs some hefty computing power to be calculated, and each Bitcoin is exponentially more difficult to calculate than the last. You might have heard of Bitcoin mining. That's basically setting a computer going to do the calculations to claim the next Bitcoin. But actually setting one computer going isn't going to get you far right now. This isn't like leaving your computer to defrag overnight. As I speak, there are people building warehouses full of specially built, high-spec computers, sucking huge amounts of electricity off the grid to mine or calculate the next bitcoins. For libertarians who think that they can bypass the power of government, there's a couple of problems. People like Ron Paul have been banging on about the gold standard and how inflation is theft for decades. They do have a point. There's no denying how governments printing too much currency have impoverished their populations, such as in Zimbabwe or in Germany before the rise of Hitler. We are well used to the problems of excessive inflation, but not so much with the problems of deflation, the constant fall in prices. 
Inflation at moderate levels has an important function in the economy. It rebalances the power between buyers and sellers. If Ron Paul had his way and all currency was just a token for a fixed amount of actual gold stored in a vault somewhere, then what would happen? If gold or its tokens were the basis of all trade, then the price of gold would skyrocket. And given that gold mining is a subset of the size of the total global economy, all economic growth would mean increasing the amount of goods and services that could be bought by a fixed amount of gold. There would be either permanent deflation or permanent recession, or most likely both. Anyone with any capital would be motivated to hoard it, not invest it, knowing that just doing nothing would make it worth more tomorrow than it is today. That's why governments steadily increase the money supply over time, ideally in line with economic growth. Sure, too much money supply can create hyperinflation, but too little can be equally disastrous. And then we come to Bitcoin. Its maths mean that there can only ever exist 21 million bitcoins. Some people see that as a way to escape evil governments inflating away their savings with what they call fiat currency. But it cannot match the growth in the global economy, so if it ever was more than a sideshow, it would cause economic meltdown. And let's not get carried away. The second type of people enthusiastic about bitcoin are computer enthusiasts. They rave about the way it polices itself, its security, its anonymity, all independent of any government authority. The first Bitcoin purchase was in 2011, buying two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoins. To make a transaction like that, you have to use Bitcoin exchanges, such as Mt. Gox, Bitomat, MyBitcoin, Bitcoinica, Bitcoin Savings and Trust, Bitfloor, InstaWallet, Bitcoin Foundation, Inputs.io, Global Bond Limited, Flexcoin, Beter, Bitstamp, Cryptsy, Gatecoin, Bitfinex, or NiceHash. But hang on, it's not secure at all. As a proportion of its value over time, Bitcoin is probably the most stolen currency in history. The one thing about all those exchanges is that every one of them, every single one, has either been the target of successful hacks, where hundreds of millions of dollars worth of bitcoins were stolen by criminals, or the whole exchange turned out to be actually run by criminals who went offline and stole all their clients' money. Wired magazine noted that almost half of all bitcoin exchanges have ended up closing down. That's in the last seven years that the Bitcoin has existed. But all that doesn't matter, because I'm not arguing that Bitcoin is a bad currency. I'm arguing that Bitcoin is not a currency at all. A currency is a reliable means of transmitting value over space and time. I can put some money in my wallet, drive to the grocery store, and use the money to pay for groceries. Or I can borrow some money from the bank to buy a car and pay it back over the next couple of years out of my salary. Now, you and I can make a purchase online and send Bitcoin, so if you manage not to get hacked, Bitcoin works pretty well across space. But time is another thing. The Bitcoins paid for those two pizzas at Papa John's a few years ago are now worth something like $150 million. 
I hope that pizza tasted good. I'm sure that guy is kicking himself, but hang on. What would happen if he had borrowed the bitcoins from his friend? What would he pay back? I mentioned the sharp increases in the value of bitcoin, but another feature is the wild swings in value along the way. They mean that nobody could ever make or take a loan in bitcoin because you would never have any idea what the repayments would be worth. And it's pretty clear that many of the swings in value were associated with online attacks, where criminals sold heavily in advance of bad news coming out, announced their hack, crashing the value, and then bought back when the price was low. Governments do everything in their power to make sure that doesn't happen to their currencies, because they know that there will be a revolution if it does. The people who run Bitcoin exchanges sometimes have a vested interest in wild fluctuations. Bubbles are based on a fool buying in, hoping that there will be a greater fool to buy from them. If you want to have some fun and have some spare cash, go right ahead. But don't risk money you can't afford to lose. And remember that, like the South Sea shares and Dutch tulips, whatever the price... Bitcoins are now, and will always be, worth nothing. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On a Skype line now, I have Kevin Gostola. He's the managing editor of Shadowproof.com. He's also written extensively about a previous guest on this podcast, John Kiriakou. And he's also one of the hosts of the weekly podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. Um, Kevin, you wrote one article recently on Shadowproof about, the article was titled, FCC gives Sinclair Broadcast Group a gift by eliminating key media ownership rule. Can you tell me what these media ownership rules that the FCC have, what are they exactly? So the rule that was at issue here uh, was one that put restrictions or limits on the kinds of uh, like radio stations or television or even just news publications in general that uh, a company could own in a given market. And uh, this went all the way back to, uh, you know, the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was it's been around for 40 years. And it was in order to prevent monopolies, in order to really protect um, independent voices and, and also ensure that there was uh, diversity of, of opinion. You could even say if you wanted to in market terms, mm-hmm. it was a way to ensure competition. Um, and now what you have is uh, with the leadership, with Chairman Ajit Pai, uh, you have this change now that is going to make it possible for uh, the same media company to own a newspaper and a broadcast station in the same market. Um, I should say for I should say for listeners, um, they might have heard Ajit Pai is not a very common name. Um, there is only one Ajit Pai, as far as I know. He's the chairman of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. He's been in the news for wanting to roll back the net neutrality rules, but this is something different that's also within his remit. Am I right on that? That's correct. Although I would say it's somewhat connected because it all points to allowing 
uh, these select few corporations in the United States to have more control over not only um, TV markets, but radio markets um, and, uh, you know, uh, publishing markets. These are uh, tremendous uh, for these companies. They're, they're seeking to have uh, more control. And, and what what is this essentially happening here by getting rid of this rule is you're allowing for more media consolidation, which we already have a tremendous amount of media consolidation in the United States in the last uh, 20 to 30 years. And by that, I mean, you know, we had dozens of media companies if you go back to the 90s or 80s. And then now we're down to about five or six uh, gigantic conglomerates um, that you can basically name off the top of your head. We're talking about Disney. We're talking about um, Viacom, Time, Time Warner, uh, these types. Yeah. And one thing I should say on that, just for people maybe who aren't absolutely familiar with it, if you take what what the FCC charmingly calls a market, which might be something like the Chicago area or the New York area, um, what they mean is a big city or a big metro area. And the rule essentially was, if you take the newspapers and the TV stations in particular, but also the radio stations in that market, there was a limit to the number of those that any one company could own in that market. Am I correct on that? What was the limit? You know, I don't know the the limit off the top of my head, but in order to give your listeners an actual example of what this will mean for a city, Mm -hmm. um, in my article, I highlighted the city of St. Louis, because right now, um, a very prominent, in fact, if your listeners watch Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, they maybe saw him skew or skewer Mm -hmm. Sinclair Broadcast Group and go after them. Um, This is a right-wing outfit that has... uh, enjoyed a lot of uh, prominence as of late because of President Donald Trump. And and so what they would like to do is acquire stations in the St. Louis market in Missouri. And, you know, one of the things they would have had to do is make divestment of some of their uh, ownings, uh, some of what they have in their holdings in order to go through and buy um, some of the things that they wanted to acquire. But now, um, in this in this instance, so they're looking to acquire the Tribune Media Company, which is a very uh, major company in the United States. It owns the Chicago Tribune. It has um, WGN America, which is uh, out of Chicago. And so, um, you know, now instead of having to divest any stations, they basically could own some of these local channels in St. Louis uh, because this media ownership rule would allow them to maintain ownership over these stations without having to get rid of them. So so this means they can basically buy this media group. Previously, if they did that, they would have had to sell off, almost have a one-in, one-out rule, that they would have had to sell off some of the stations that that conglomerate owned in markets where they already owned up at the limit of the the ownership limits there um the the question i mean uh kevin you've you know done contributions for democracy now for the real news for counterspin for the young turks and so on um i think it's fair to say you're a left-leaning journalist is there a bit of uh sour grapes here that you just don't like sinclair broadcast group and you want to they're a pro-trump uh, organization, and you just don't want them to have what they want. I don't think so. I think that this is bad for people all around because we're talking about uh, making it easier for um, just a handful of companies to have control. This actually doesn't, um, you know, 
it helps Sinclair. It doesn't help smaller independent conservative publications. If you're an independent, if you're a, let's let's say if you're a small business person and what you want to do is you know have something like the so-called let let's say you want to start something and call it the Patriot News Channel or something, and mm-hmm. uh, you want to uh, just uh, talk about tax reform since that's a hot button issue right now in the United States, and that's going to be the thing that you want to just hit for the next year. Uh, I mean, I think chances are you're going to find that you're a small fish and it's going to be really, really difficult to get any sort of traction and get your show onto any of these channels. I mean, the problem that exists is that these massive companies have the control over the airwaves um, and on all of these uh, television channels. And so there isn't any opportunities for others to get their voices out. Okay, but pause with that for a second, because as you said, these rules go back about 40 years. It's not something new. They've been around for a long time. And Ajit Pai, the, the new, um, I think, very Trump-leaning um, chairman of the FCC, ha- has certainly indicated that he wants a lot of market liberalization. He wants to essentially get rid of a lot of these rules. But as I say, these rules came in maybe 40 years ago. Technology has changed in enormous leaps since then and one of the things was unless you had cable tv which wasn't which didn't have such a a high penetration rate at the time unless you had cable tv the technology basically meant you couldn't have more than about 13 tv channels in a city so if somebody had all or even a large chunk of that they were effectively blocking everybody out of the market but that's just not true anymore is it well, I agree with the point that you uh, that I, I take you to be making, which is that there are other ways that you can reach audiences now, uh, and you don't have to just do it through television. Uh, I mean, you could just have a, a, a only online news network. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could you could do as I do with my podcast, and and I think as you do, and just reach yep. people by being able to connect with them on the internet. And I think. Yeah, yeah but no, but we're dealing here specifically with broadcast TV. Broadcast TV is almost irrelevant at this stage, isn't it? I don't think so. I think there's still a, a tremendous amount of people who turn into broadcast media. Uh, I believe that, you know, a, a, as much as uh, it has become a, a trend or fad, uh, perhaps popularized by uh, The Daily Show, um, when Jon Stewart was a host, you still see CNN getting a, a lots of viewers um, mm-hmm. and people are tuning in to them. So but that's I not think broadcast that TV, events. that's cable TV. And this is completely unaffected by that rule. Nothing that Sinclair could do would knock CNN off their off their perch. Uh, and that's a fair point, but I think that in the in the market, I think that uh, people who are tuning in to local news channels, like that's that's not the only effect. Like I understand that you're zoning you're you're zoning in and looking at the the news uh, reports that come mm-hmm. on a daily. Like you're 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 thinking of it in terms of like who gets to put out the the news reports at the at the five o'clock or the ten o'clock hour or six a.m. in the morning for mm-hmm. a U.S audience. Um, And whether people watch those or or not, I'm not sure that that actually matters in my opinion, because I think that the the people who are in control is what should be the focus, because whether people are paying attention or not, Sinclair Group will still have the ability, or whoever is this company that owns the ability, will have the ability to push their agenda through their broadcasting. And like you say, 
uh, and like like we've agreed upon, you don't need to reach people over the TV. There's so many people um, on the internet, and and that's where perhaps audiences are going to move. But then in that case, you produce uh, material or content for broadcast, and it moves on to the internet, and then mm-hmm. it spreads like wildfire. So uh, you know if if we were concerned about propaganda just reaching people through broadcast television, I think it becomes even worse because of the atomization that we have in media. Yes, so now, well, let's deal with the atomization of, of the media in a moment. But would you accept that these rules were not to allow or to prevent propaganda? They were to make sure that there was a multiplicity of voices heard. And 40 years ago, if somebody owned essentially bought up all of the TV stations in a particular market, in a particular city, that would lock everybody else out. And so there was a good reason to say, well, you're not able to, you're not allowed to own more than a certain limit there. Now you can buy every single broadcast TV station and nobody really cares because you can just open your laptop or plug in your cable box or um, very often, as is happening, uh, watch it on Amazon Prime or on Netflix. And that would you accept that the block in technology that was available to a, a dominant player 40 years ago does not exist now? I'm a bit confused by your question, but I I, I have a tough time accepting the uh the thrust of it because i do think that it's a concern that 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 a company would be able to have all this access to an audience and that this consolidation would happen and and, and primarily that would be because it it opens everyone up to having an agenda imposed mm-hmm. upon them and you know the 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 point of uh so they never talk about propaganda. That's never been the way that media ownership rules have been crafted. You talk about it in terms of competition, mm-hmm. but certainly in the in the process. Well, I put of a competition, FEC, but also a multiplicity of voices. Yeah, but uh, but certainly in the crafting of these rules back in the 1970s, I would presume that a concern would have been that one station or just two or three stations would be able to impose their perspective um and, and that that would be a concern that uh because you know you you do have to be concerned about uh the the way that a private media entity can can gain control i mean i i personally believe that there are countries in which outside the united states you know if you look to latin america where you you can have tremendous issues with uh, media conglomerates gaining the, the so much power and and, and influence, and mm-hmm. if it's just in the hands of a few, um, that that goes a long ways towards, in some cases, even destabilizing your country. And I and I know that, like, yes, I'll acknowledge the perspective in which I'm coming from, and 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 uh, concede that it is left leaning. But I also think that there's a, there's a reality to it because. Sinclair Broadcast Group is going to use the access that they obtain from the end of this media ownership rule to push not only its agenda for, let's just say, tax cuts for the rich and wealthy and why that they they want people to believe that that can benefit the middle class, Mm -hmm. but also they're going to put out stories that CNN could probably easily investigate and prove to be fake, um, that, 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 
play to an audience and and whip up people and get them agitated in order to support uh, Donald Trump's conservative extreme policies. Sure, sure, but but people always have a choice, and people can always switch over and watch. Um, a channel like CNN that has pro and anti-Trump speakers quite typically, or MSNBC, which probably leans more left, or they can find one of a, a zillion news sources on the uh, on the internet. Uh, they have the illusion of choice. They can they they can go to these other outlets, but the fact is that. These are public airwaves that are given licenses to private companies. Mm -hmm. And as I understand it, the way in which they use those licenses are something that we should be concerned about. That's why we have an FCC. That's why the public um, expects the FCC to implement policy that fits the public. And if you've got companies that are engaged in um, in the sort of uh, production of a fake news, if that's what you want oh, to hold use. Hold on, hold on a second. You know, there's fake news. That, that word is being thrown around a lot. Um, the Sinclair Broadcast Group is a major professional outlet. It's not some uh, Infowars uh, conspiracy theorist loons on the internet. You can disagree it, with that perspective, but but they're a, a major, you know, they're a respectable company. Well, I would never suggest that they're like Infowars. I think that <laughs> that's something that's a league of its own. That um, and so I wouldn't ever want anybody to insinuate that that's what I was suggesting. But I believe that Sinclair has done a fair amount of fabrication of uh, of, of stories, um, and I, I need not spend time on it on it here, ex- except to say that you could just. Tune in to the last week tonight clip that John Oliver did. I mean, I'll put, um, a, I'll put a link to that in the in the show notes for this podcast on on, on the webpage for this podcast. I want to go on just to one last um, topic, uh, Kevin. It's notable that there are far there is far more space for far more voices. What people seem to be doing is not listening to a great, a wider variety of voices. Given that opportunity, they seem to choose to listen to a far narrower range of voices. People only seem to want to listen to what they agree with. That's the uh, um, perhaps why Infowars is doing so well. I suspect it's certainly why Fox News and also maybe the Young Turks are doing so well. Isn't um, isn't there a real problem there with with that atomization? It's something we didn't expect, but it really seems to be the case. It, it's that's a tough question, um, and and I thank you for it. I, I suppose I it, quickly I could give two answers. I mean, one, I think it's hugely beneficial because for me the atomization has made it possible for media like Shadowproof or the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast, yeah, for you and me basically to do well. Yeah, I mean, because we find we find people who want to listen to us. And but but then again, you've you've heard a, a numerous people. This isn't a necessarily a, a fresh take, but it's relevant to our discussion is that you don't have the sort of shared moment in collectives anymore where mm-hmm. something happens on a, a piece of, on media. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I guess you could say that what's shifted is maybe that shared moment is happening on Twitter where mm-hmm. you're seeing things trend or you're seeing something trend on Facebook. And that's where we all tune in and we are all taking in a moment 
together. Like, you know, who's the latest person in the United States um, who's been accused of sexual harassment, et cetera, you know, like where everyone is tuned in to that and uh, addressing it. Sure. Um, Although it has to be said that the take that people get is now be especially by Facebook being exquisitely honed to appeal to the person who's reading it. So the person who, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, you went to work and at the water cooler, you, you talked about what you saw on the TV news last night. Everybody saw the same thing. Uh, now, so it might be influenced by some of the same events, but um, what you saw on your Facebook feed could give you an entirely different impression to what your colleagues saw. So I'm going to give you an answer, and it's probably not where you expected me to go with this. Oh, but, go, go. Uh, but but the reason why I think that this is a problem is actually uh, because of the fact that you know in the United States we only have two political parties, uh, and I think that largely has to do with what you're talking about. Because I think what we're addressing here, if we just take it to be just a U.S. issue. Uh, the, 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 because I know everywhere there's a level of atomization going on, but in particular to the United States, which I'm familiar with and can speak to, I think that what really creates the, the sorting where people, uh, just, um, you know, they take refuge in people who they can agree with. Mm -hmm. And then you have tremendous partisanship. And I think that the division here is is really and and the sorting and and the the trying to find people who will say things that you find appealing rather than trying to figure out the facts and what is actually true that comes from the fact that we just only have a democratic or a republican party and that is a much much larger issue and definitely for a, a different discussion but i think the way it appears here in media is important because what people are doing is they're saying, I'm going to go find media that is a liberal or Democrat or they're saying, I'm going to go find media that's conservative or Republican, or I'm going to seek out um, a, an individual who has figured out a perspective of the world that fits in uh, somewhere in between. And, and because you've, you've got two camps only, you never really get to break through on a lot of issues. Kevin Gostola, managing editor of shadowproof.com and also one of the hosts of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Never miss a show. You can subscribe to the podcast for free using iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast software or app. See challengingopinions.com backslash subscribe for details. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast, published on December 11th, 2017. I have links to Kevin's website and to the article that we were talking about in the podcast notes that you can find on the website. And if you know someone else who I should interview, maybe yourself, or you have an idea of what other topics I should be covering, I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there's one thing that you could do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating, and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at ChallengingO, and follow Kevin at KGoshtola. That's K-G-O-S-Z-T-O-L-A. And most importantly... Subscribe to the show for free. You can use Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or any other podcast app or software. 
There's links and an RSS feed for all of that on the website. And if you don't use a podcast app or software, you can subscribe by email. Just enter your email address on the Challenging Opinions website and you'll get an email each time a new show goes online with a simple link to click and listen to the show and zero spam, I promise. You can find all of that or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's December 18th, I'll be talking to Heather MacDonald about the thesis of her new book that there's currently going on a war on cops in the United States. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.